from Los Angeles. Next, Rethinking Heroes. You've heard of deep fake, which is when AI makes fake audio or video that looks exactly like the real thing. Well, it's showing up in politics all around the world. Plus, why would part of formerly German-occupied Africa be taking the Israeli government to court? Well, it's all next on Rethinking Heroes. Rethinking Heroes with Kerry Harrison. I've spent a decade taking a bite out of conspiracy theories, unraveling urban legends, and grappling with worldwide top secret issues. I've even racked up some of their awards. Wow, I mean, first of all, what a question. Journalism is about telling the truth, all while ferreting out the bottom line. I'm a Harrison Hellraiser. Uh-oh, with me, Carrie Harrison, as your guide. Rethinking Heroes, Life After the Military, with Carrie Harrison. And it is Rethinking Heroes. Carrie Harrison with you, RethinkingHeroes.com, where you can always get a little more. You can also check us out on uh, Twitter, formerly known as, well, no, X, formerly known as Twitter. Who knows what Elon Musk will do today? Uh, at Rethinking Heroes. Well, today we're going to dive into a much-discussed issue hitting democratic processes globally. That's the rise of deep fakes and generative artificial intelligence. Now, if you've had any access to any media over any period of recent time, that's all you're hearing about, AI this, AI that. Well, what is it and where is it aimed? Where are the crosshairs for this thing set? We're going to discuss the potential threats and how corporations like OpenAI, that's ChatGPT, are actually addressing them. Meanwhile, there are good people in tech doing old school work. Uh, we got a lot of press releases sent to the show, and a couple of recent ones show some creative people are using tech and AI and just good common sense to help our veterans when they often can't help themselves. There's a company called Zeal, and they spell that a Z-E-E-L, and it's a tech startup that provides in-home massage therapy and virtual health treatments all to vets through a network of 4,000 professionals. Apparently around 100 million of us are in chronic pain uh, and they have a tech guru named uh, Samer Ham Hamada and he's relieving veterans pain without, this is key, resorting to addictive opioids or surgery. <laughs> Old fashioned human touch uh, and this tech is helping vets access their benefits, uh-oh, by breaking through red tape, double uh-oh. Unlike AA, he actually holds actual degrees in chemistry and chemical engineering from Stanford. So let's go back to the dark side. No, uh, no degrees, but lots of engineering. Every one of us is somewhat nail-biting. We are about the approaching 2024 elections, a prime example of concern. Last year's Slovakian election, where a deceptive audio recording misleadingly portraying the opposition leader planning electoral fraud. So this is a fake video. It actually swayed the public vote toward the other candidate, all while the media sat silent. Surprise! But who generated this game-changing deepfake? Well, it turns out we still don't know. What was its impact on the election? Also unclear, as the said victim, uh, Mikhail Simeka, was leading the exit polls, leading the exit polls, which generally are accurate, but ended up losing to the hard right candidate. So expert, experts are predicting that this technique isn't going to be limited to Slovakia only. And oddly, I was literally in Slovakia last fall when this happened. I was leading a cultural tour and totally unaware this was even going on in the background. So here's the deal. 
We're meeting with a dangerous blend now of efficiency, accessibility, and realism in technology that's fueling real concerns. Meanwhile, our ability to detect and eradicate covert propaganda is pretty impotent. Companies such as OpenAI, which owns ChatGPT, they are stepping up a little bit. They're also stepping down by throwing their AI towards drones and weaponry, literally rushing to help build Skynet, if you'll allow the Terminator analogy. Another show for another time, and I'll tell you about a conversation I had with a black ops guy uh, who was meeting with JSOC and what's, what they know and what they're allowing. Meanwhile, the problem for us is AI-driven accounts are spreading pro-China, anti-American material and deep-faked videos amassing massive views before they're discovered and before they're removed. In other words, they do their job, then they get removed. The horse is already out of the barn, as they say. Open AI, again, this is ChatGPT, has at least integrated more real-time reporting, begun licensing content from high-quality publishers. Not that you agree with those publishers, but things like the New York Times or even USA Today, you know, these are legacy media platforms that aren't going off on Jewish lasers. Let's face it, they're actually doing um, fact-based research to the best of the ability of the people that they're willing to hire these days. So we'll say that parenthetically. Um, OpenAI is also relying on a select group of approved sources, making the system tougher to manipulate. This is good. This is positive. Remember, there's no editor-in-chief of the internet. You can write the craziest stuff and make it look like the Wall Street Journal with great fonts and headlines and gravitas, but there's no adult supervision on the internet and AI just absorbs everything, absorbs whatever's out there and blends it into a, its uh, meatloaf of madness. But small startups and open source projects don't have the cash flow or the public lashing yet to try to license legitimate content. Meanwhile, some states are passing restrictions on generative AI usage, um, you know, using it in campaigns, political campaigns, with a rare bipartisan agreement. They suddenly can get along. Look at that. They suddenly can make legislation in like a day. Well, it makes sense because they don't know who would actually win or lose. So they're all compelled to remove the unknown unknowns, as Mr. Rumsfeld would say. We were talking earlier about generative AI, AI, a word that we all hear, oh, ubiquitously, hundreds of times a day. It's on everything from Twitter to formerly known as Twitter X to uh, every TV show. It's in the newspapers. And I know there's some people going, but what is it? What is it? AI, like my grandmother, who was 95, we were having lunch a couple of years ago, and she grabbed my elbow, and she leaned forward over her salad, and she said, what's the internet? <laughs> I don't blame her. Hard to know what this stuff is. And for those of us not exactly sure what AI is or deepfake, I'm going to give you an example here. I was able to, uh, let's just say, find a way to deepfake my own voice. So cloning my own vocal tones, my inflections, all the rest of it, my actual voice patterns. And then I had AI go another step. Not only do I want you to fake my voice, but I'm going to give you a piece of subject matter that I want you to write about, elaborate on it in your AI original way. So I picked something about uh, basically dog excrement on the sidewalk. 
in in L.A. with the homeless. So let's just see what it comes up with. It's a little over the top, let's face it, because it tried to do it in my voice, and I'd hate to think that I'm um, that uh, technicolor. But what the heck? Here is why this works. Now, you have a savvy ear. You're going to hear it's done by a computer, if you're paying attention. If you're not, you might just assume this is actually me. So this is an example of deep fake done by AI. Ladies and gentlemen, allow me to regale you with a discourse on a rather pungent and peculiar matter that has befallen our esteemed society. Yes, I speak of none other than the notorious presence of dog excrement on our thoroughfares. One must question the indecorum of such an occurrence within the genteel realms of our metropolis, where sophistication and Kardashian elegance ought to reign supreme. Alas, the unmistakable stench of canine feculence lingers in the air, assaulting our olfactory senses and besmirching the mud guards of our refined Land Rovers and militarized LAPD squad cars. But the random piles of dog excreta somehow avoid the scrutiny of the city council, whose obligation to the removal of the rat from the tent city has no same such passion when it comes to sidewalk scumber. Why not deploy those LAPD night vision goggles to seek and remove these dung droppings by uniformed LAPD officials with Ziploc baggies? The alternative to the callous disregard of this mounting menace would be tourists tweeting or yelping over the random spaniel stalagmite which could soil a Beverly Hills alleyway or a beautiful Hollywood subway entrance. In its sheer ubiquity, dog excrement has transcended the realm of mere inconvenience and has become a symbol of societal disregard. How can we, the epitome of intellectual prowess with our miles of beautiful cracked sidewalks, restaurants filled with lip fillers and butt lifts, tolerate such a flagrant breach of decorum? I implore you, fellow Angelinos, to join me in a crusade against this odious menace. Through education and enlightenment, and the one remaining bookstore in a city of 10 million non-readers, we shall prevail over the blight of dog waste and restore the splendor of our streets to their former glory. Okay, you just heard AI deep faking me. Now you can see with the right prompts, I mean, it's not an uninteresting story. <laughs> the truth of which, well, that is suspect. But it is computer generated and it's able to do all of that with my voice and make a fairly compelling, if not ridiculous, argument. So focus that and do it for real and make it a politician talking that way. It gets out in front of millions of people. By the time it's discovered, it's too late. They've already heard it. And guess what? They vote in advance. That's what's coming down the pike. And any other way, this stuff can be used. So regulation seems to be key, and the EU, at least, is looking toward that right now. With us right now is a savvy sifter of this emerging technology. That would be AI Zoe Schiffer, the managing editor of Platformer, an online publishing platform where she covers uh, Twitter, the X Corporation. Elon Musk, previously she was a senior reporter at The Verge, where she reported on the labor movement in Silicon Valley. Her work has been featured in New York Magazine, the San Francisco Chronicle, and Vox. She's appeared on CNN, NBC, CNBC, and the BBC. All the C's, all the C's that we love and care about her book extremely hardcore inside elon musk's twitter comes out in february and zoe schiffer glad to have you on rethinking heroes thank you so much for having me 
And thank you for dealing with that little time issue there with uh, no the technology out of China known as Zoom, upon which we all so dearly uh, rely, and which now has AI built into it and gives me a lovely summary that's almost, well, it's not so bad, um, but it's not doing anything except telling me what I did. But we're talking about something really quite different, deep faking. Uh, generative artificial intelligence influencing future elections. We saw this in Slovakia. Mm -hmm. I mentioned I was there, oddly. I may be one yeah. of the few people who was there as a tourist when this happened, unaware of what was going on in the background. But I remember when the election came out, everyone turned and they were talking to each other and saying, but I didn't vote that way. But it did mm -hmm. turn out that way. So can you augur the future just a smidge for us? <laughs> I mean, I don't know what's going to happen, but I think there's no question that artificial intelligence is going to be extremely influential in all of our lives. And I think very influential in the 2024 election. You know, deepfake technology has been around for a while, but it's now more ubiquitous and it's cheaper to produce. So when you think about, you know, candidates and, and particularly for lesser known candidates, um, having videos and audio come out that purports to show them doing some misdeed that could cause people to not vote for them, that can be um, very dangerous for all of us. And I think, Zoe uh, Schiffer, for people who aren't quite familiar with what we're talking about, so, you know, in Radio yeah. Land, we have people that are over 60 all the way to the finish line. Yeah. And then uh, listening yeah. on the podcast, we have people under 60 all the way to the birth line. So they may be <laughs> more familiar with this. We're talking about what used to be called special effects in video, where you could make mm -hmm. somebody look like somebody and maybe make their mouth move. And it was more or less believable. Now you cannot tell you cannot tell the voices are pretty identical and it looks good enough to be convincing and can sway entire elections you can take any popular star and we see this in the entertainment industry the movie industry why would you pay 20 million dollars to an actor if you can license his likeness give him a hundred grand yeah. for two minutes Woohoo! Yeah. what a deal but that deal can change everything right yeah, completely. I think it's, I mean, that's what I said at the start, like it's going to really impact all of us. It's going to have a big impact on jobs, but I think particularly for politics when we live in such a polarized world, um, if you have people who already want to believe a particular thing about a candidate, they might not be motivated to seek out accurate information. They might see that one clip and decide that it's kind of the, the um, all the information that they need. Well, I'm waiting for the Donald Trump clip with the Jesus-like halo floating over his head. Um, I'm waiting. It'll happen, but it'll mean nothing. Uh, Zoe Schaefer, Schaefer, your book is really the inside story of Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter from the perspective yeah. of the people that worked there, tracking employees who worked closely with Musk at various points in the acquisition. But they all have different perspectives for some reason. What's your takeaway? I mean, I think that the reason that I wanted to write this book is that there's such a big power differential between Elon Musk and the people that work for him. And he's arguably the most powerful person in the world who's not like in charge of a nuclear arsenal. And so I think we all need to pay a great deal of attention <laughs> to him. 
and what he does. But um, at the same time, you know, he has the biggest megaphone on X and he's kind of started to reshape the platform so that he and the people that he favors are always like heard above everyone else. And what I really wanted to do was kind of understand how he operates and what's the impact of the decisions that he makes and really do that by talking to people who have much, much less power than he does. But at the same time, work very closely with him and have a lot of insight into his character. Well, it's interesting because I remember just a few years ago, I mean, who he was the coolest guy on earth. You know, he was setting out into right. extraterrestrial. It was amazing, amazing. And um, then we find this particular political appetite that is um, not cloaked. I mean, to his credit, he is really transparent. I believe in this. Children should mm -hmm. be slaves, whatever it is. I mean, he's right out there doing it. But like you said, he owns the largest megaphone on earth, pretty much. It, it eclipses Facebook in so many sort of meaningful ways now. And if you yeah. do that and you've got deep fakery going on, is he doing anything to uh, hammer away at fake videos that, you know? You know, he's really said that X is going to be a video first platform. X, again, is what um, Twitter is now called. Um, I don't think he's come out specifically and talked about what they're going to do around deepfakes. He might have. I'm not 100% sure. But what I do know is that largely in terms of fact checking on the platform, what he's relied on is the service called Community Notes, which is a crowdsourced fact checking tool. So if you tweet something that's disinformation, the Community Notes community can vote and, and kind of come up with a line um, or two that should appear under your tweet to tell people, hey, this comment is misleading or it's been debunked in this specific way. Unfortunately, what we've seen is that during moments of crisis, it's just too slow and too easy to game to be a very effective fact-checking tool. And, and often by the time we do see the notes attached to tweets, um, they already have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of views. You know, you just pointed something very important out, Zoe Schiffer, when you talk about the community. If, you know, if I build a community of guys that eat red meat, it's going to end up being a bunch of guys that eat red meat. And then I throw out a piece of tofu and have them comment on it. Can I reliably imagine how they're going to comment on it? Yes, I can. So while it looks good on the surface, the practice of it is going to be just as swayed as the original problem. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I'm not here to tell you that Elon Musk isn't a brilliant person. Like, obviously, the companies that he's built and the impact that he's had on the environment is incredibly impressive and influential. But, but I do think there's a remarkable change that's taken place in the last few years that's not as well documented. And that is he doesn't have as many people around him today as he did in 2013 that will tell him the honest truth and give him real feedback. He really is surrounded by yes men and sycophants who tell him what he wants to hear. And I think that that's a very dangerous position to be in for anyone, but much less someone with as much power as Elon Musk has. Carrie Harris with you. This is Rethinking Heroes, RethinkingHeroes.com. We're talking to Zoe Schiffer, Managing Editor of Platformer, where she covers Twitter, X-Corporation, that is, Elon Musk, previously a senior reporter at The Verge, where she reported on the labor movement in Silicon Valley. Her work has been featured in New York Magazine, the San Francisco Chronicle, and Vox. She's appeared on CNN, NBC, CNBC, and the BBC. And her book, Extremely Hardcore, Inside Elon Musk's Twitter, comes out in February 
February, and uh, Zoe, we're talking about deep fake. We're talking about the ability to make videos that look like real videos where you really can't tell. Um, different companies like uh, OpenAI, uh, probably Mark Zuckerberg is getting in on this. We know that uh, some politicians have actually gotten together from different sides and voted together in a remarkable series of weeks. They actually made legislation. Why? Because they don't know who the winner is going to be. Therefore, you don't want to have this problem out there at all. (laughs) So do you think people are going to be more appropriately threatened by this and do something about it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those rare issues where every politician has something to lose if the technology is not regulated effectively, because everyone can be the victim of a particularly good deep fake, and it can really have an impact on their career. So there's a big incentive for people to come together and regulate technology, which in the United States is no easy feat. I mean, there's a lot of talk about regulating tech and very, very little action. So the fact that this has already gotten bipartisan support, I think is pretty remarkable. You know, I'm a fan of the EU in a lot of ways. Sure, they're problematic. If you're a European, I'm not, so it's not a problem to be. But I sort of appreciate the fact that they're actually having like adult discussions about AI, like what happens if. And I think in a way, there's kind of a breaking system that we're seeing with the EU before. We are a global marketplace. So if you just go back to just selling in the U.S., great, but it's a limited uh, prospect. If you're going to sell in Europe, you're suddenly exposed to European laws and EU regulations. So if they actually do something that's real and we refuse to hear, for us to be able to release whatever we're doing globally, it's going to slow it down and correct it, at least a little bit, I would think. Yeah, it's an interesting situation because in the EU, you have real regulation on a bunch of fronts, but particularly for the tech industry and AI right now. I mean, they're really going hard on this. And you have a populace that is generally a lot happier with how their government is regulating the technology. At the same time, you have an economy that's generally weaker in comparison to the United States, where you have people who are very unhappy with how our government has failed to effectively regulate tech. And yet the benefit of that is that it's an easier place to be if you're a business. Well, yeah, (laughs) that's the Wild West for you. You know, have gun, will travel or whatever the name of the movie was once upon a time. Uh, Let's take a quick peek at uh, what happens if uh, like OpenAI, which is uh, ChatGPT, which I would say... Mm -hmm. 30% of the people listening, maybe more, have used once or twice. It's certainly curious. Uh, It's, in effect, you can write in anything you want. It's like Google that answers you um, long form, like even those complicated (laughs) questions. It doesn't just find something that somebody else wrote. It'll just create something for you and give you an answer. Not exactly true because it combs the entire internet. That means Billy um, sacrificing poodles in a corner, whatever. It doesn't care. It doesn't know. It doesn't have that discernment necessarily. Uh, So my train of thought totally derailed, but I was going to ask you pretty much about how OpenAI has decided to help uh, use this technology in the military drones oh, right. and other things we're talking yeah. we're aiming towards skynet here using the terminator analogy <laughs> yeah i mean i think we're really at the very beginning of seeing what these tools can do i think 
like you're mentioning, there's no question that it will reshape how we search for stuff on the internet. Um, the way that it does it is actually quite different from how Google does it. So when you type in a question to Google, Google's scanning websites and coming up with what it thinks are the websites that might have the best answers. ChatGPT has, as you said, ingested like basically the entire internet and then is just predicting the next word in a sentence that it thinks will be an adequate answer to the query that you posed, which is kind of an interesting um difference and i think we have yet to see like what will happen when it's applied to to military uses you know we see it in schools a lot um why write a term paper when you can have <laughs> the internet write it for you in 12 seconds okay. what would have okay. taken 12 weeks and you would have had to read an entire paper book possibly which was so yeah. irritating and time consuming so this is like the cure to that but we're able more and more now to detect these uh, AI-originated long-form things. So I think with the same kind of appetite there is for the creepy dark stuff, there is for also shining light on it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think we... we um, still don't have incredible capabilities for differentiating between you know, an AI generated image and a real photo of someone or AI generated text and text that's created by a human. But I think there's no question that those tools are getting better. The detection methods are getting better. And there's a lot of incentive from a lot of different sides to create better detection tools. We've been talking to Zoe Schiffer, managing editor of Platformer. Platformer, uh, you guys left Substack. Maybe we could do 12 seconds on, well, 83 seconds on that. Uh, <laughs> so, people know what Substack is, but there's Platformer now. Why that choice? Yeah. Oh, well, we um, we were platformer on Substack. We moved from Substack to a decentralized platform called Ghost. And the reason for that is really that Ghost is a non profit and it doesn't have um, ambitions to be a social network. What we've seen from venture-backed newsletter platforms is that because of the need to create returns for investors, they're often incentivized to create social tools. And, and when you start doing that and you lean into algorithmic recommendations, you really have a different burden of content moderation, I, I believe. Um, versus a platform that operates almost more like Gmail, where you and I wouldn't say like, oh, you know, that person who was convicted of a terrible crime shouldn't have a Gmail account. We we wouldn't say that. We, we think they should be able to. And so we just wanted to be on a platform where it felt like it was more of an um, infrastructure platform and less of a social network. And I like you said content moderation. I immediately thought of content immoderation because that's really what we're looking at. So you've made a good <laughs> choice to uh, be around uh, an area where people have accountability and responsibility. And I think that's why we love you. Uh, Zoe Schiffer, <laughs> Managing Editor of Platformer, covering Twitter, ex-corporation Elon Musk, previously senior reporter at The Verge, where she reported on the labor movement in Silicon Valley. Her work has been featured in the New York Magazine and San Francisco Chronicle, and Vox appearing on CNN, NBC, CNBC, and the BBC. Her book, Extremely Hardcore Inside Elon Musk's Twitter, comes out in February. Coming up, Nabibia in Africa is voicing strong objections to Germany's support of Israel's defense against charges of genocide. Why would they care? And why the massive wave of online attention? Preventing truth decay. Rethinking Heroes with Kerry Harrison. 
RethinkingHeroes.com. Have you heard about Zeal, a technology startup that offers in-home massage therapy and telebehavioral health treatments through a network of 4,000 licensed professionals? Well, Samer Hamada, founder and CEO of Zeal, leads a mission to address pain for 100 million Americans without resorting to opioids or surgery. His mission? To help veterans access their benefits, which includes the ability to get timely, reliable, cost-effective health care on Zeal's end by breaking through the red tape to help veterans achieve this access. You discovered that our veterans are affected by opioid addiction at a much higher rate than the general population, but you came up with a fix. Yeah, they're addicted at uh, seven times the rate of the general population, which is truly tragic. And an estimated 65% of veterans suffer from chronic pain. So it's a huge problem. It's a terrible academic. And Zeal's mission is to help veterans reduce use of these prescription, but also over-the-counter painkillers. So we've now served over 5,000 veterans. We've completed 50,000 massage treatments. And while the data are self-reported, they show that 92% of veterans report reduction pain, and roughly half are telling us that they've reduced or even eliminated their prescription and OTC pain meds, which is really cool. So it's the human touch, really. The old-fashioned human touch is part of the answer here. It really is. A lot of our vets also live alone or rural parts of the country, and so that visit from a human is critical. I understand you have a special programming technology that you spent more than a year beta testing through the VA. Remember, we're doing massages here, and you did this in three test markets. What did you learn in terms of health outcomes? You know, we spent over $5 million building out the technology, and it starts with ingesting prescriptions from the VA's computers into our computers. Then it sends a text to the veteran's mobile phone so that he or she can fill out all of the paperwork, as well as book the appointment. And it's all online, no human interaction. And about 50% of our vets, carry go that route. The other 50% call 877-GET-ZEAL and speak to the call center. And during the pilot, which started in the three cities that you're talking about and then expanded to nine cities, we treated 1,000 veterans, and the results were off the charts. 92% reported pain reduction, 87% reported stress reduction, and as I said earlier, half roughly reported reducing or eliminating prescription pain meds and OTC pain meds. So based on these results, the VA approved us in March of 2023 to launch nationwide, and we've gone from those initial nine cities to now 51 cities. Our medical massage therapist, Carrie, worked for Zeal's medical practice, owned and operated by our chief medical officer. They go to veterans' homes, so they never have to traverse the VA hospital itself, which we do understand is very hard to traverse. But the veterans do have to traverse the VA systems to get And here's how it works. So to access community care, veterans must first be enrolled in VA health care and receive a referral from their health care here at the VA. Veterans can choose from a network of approved community providers or can work with VA staff to find a provider that meets their needs. And massage therapy is prescribed, so uh, the typical diagnosis is musculoskeletal pain, which is 54% of prescriptions are for back pain, 20% are for neck pain, and then there's some for shoulder and knee pain, fibromyalgia, and migraine. Uh, but they do have to go see their VA physician to get the prescription in order for us to come see them. So th- there's some difficulty there, but the technology we built before that I mentioned really helped to some of those issues. I think you said something key when you said for us to come see them. So a lot of people are disabled or they just can't get around well. You're talking about on-location massage therapy. You guys show up and do this covered benefit for veterans. 
Yeah. And it's, it's a godsend because, um, you know, uh, as you know, when you have someone showing up at your door with a table ready to go, there are no missed appointments or no-shows or what the VA calls compliance issues. And that no-show missed appointments problem at VA is $4.4 billion a year of issues. So with Zeal, 90% of veterans complete all 12 treatments versus 40%, the VA tells us, when a veteran has to go somewhere for like physical therapy or a primary care visit. So again, it's no surprise. We come to your house. You save an hour of round-trip travel time. We're open more hours. We can come on nights and weekends. We did some appointments this past Christmas Day for veterans. So if you're a veteran who's, like you said, disabled or immobile or not sleeping well or living too far away from a clinic, this New Zeal program is a godsend. And the best way for people to find you, uh, if they're veterans, is 877-GET-ZEAL, Z-E-E-L? Correct. Uh, but ultimately, they have to go see their VA physician or you know, do a telehealth visit with a VA physician to get a prescription for us to come see them. We can't write them a prescription ourselves. Samar Hamada is a member of ZEAL actually the creator and founder of Zeal, and they are a member of the VA Community Care Network, which provides on-location massage therapy as a covered benefit for veterans. Once you do contact and reach out, as he recommended, that you can then call 877-GET-ZEAL, Z-E-E-L. Rethinking Heroes with Kerry Harrison, RethinkingHeroes.com. And it is Rethinking Heroes. Kerry Harrison with you, RethinkingHeroes.com. You can also send us a an X formerly known as a tweet, at Rethinking Heroes. You know, when it hits the BBC, Bloomberg, even Reuters, you have to wonder about repeated genocide claims against Israel, most specifically from Namibia in Africa. Now, why Namibia? Well, German colonizers killed tens of thousands of people in Namibia between 1904 and 1908. This amounted to some 80% of one of the peoples there. Uh, Their land and livestock were also confiscated. But why? Well, punishment for taking part in an uprising against the German occupation at the time. Now, Germany has even filed a declaration of intervention on behalf of Israel at the International Court of Justice. And at the root is Namibia criticizing Germany for causing that first genocide of the 20th century on Namibian soil. Uh, Now, Namibia is joined by Bolivia and Brazil, Algeria, Malaysia, Jordan, even South Africa, condemning what they view as Israel's severe military overreach. Former apartheid South Africa waving its finger at the History Channel's favorite moneymaker, wartime Germany that was. So we're all living in this weird, unusual era where the complexities of politics and history intertwine in the most bizarre of ironies. And meanwhile, we have global realignments enfolding in front of our eyes. So where will it all go? And what does it all mean? Well, in Germany right now is Henning Melber, who just wrote the piece, Namibia, Germany and Israel, the pitfalls of selective remorse and trauma for the Namibian. He's with the Nordic Africa Institute, is senior advisor and director emeritus of the Dag Hammarskjöld Foundation. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Uh, We've all seen the word, but nobody knows how to pronounce it in this country. Henning Melber, thank you for joining us here on Rethinking Heroes. Thank you very much, Kerry. It's nice to be with you. And 
this is a, a complicated issue and understand that our history here, a lot of it is George Washington rowing the Potomac, um, our wonderful myths and whatever. We, the, the nitty gritty of occupations in remote parts of Africa for us uh, are unknown to most of the population. So can you run us through what the core event was that is causing all of this brouhaha? Imperial Germany was at the turn to the 20th century, the fourth biggest colonial empire in the world. Only that that got lost after World War I. And as a result of that, it was basically put on the shelves and it became a colonial amnesia in Germany herself and in the rest of the world. But what happened was that in 2015, Germany for the first time admitted that it committed the first genocide of the 20th century in its then colony, Southwest Africa. That was a genocide which by all scholarly research and even a United Nations ECOSOC report was categorized as a genocide. And since 2015, Namibia and South Africa on bilateral government negotiations tried to find a compromise to come to terms with that admission of guilt. Now, what frustrated Namibian President Hage Geingob was, while Namibia took sides with South Africa in the claim against Israel in the International Court of Justice, Germany declared on the 12th of January to be a third party in defense of Israel. Notably, on the very day, which 120 years before, the Ovaherero, an indigenous people in then Southwest Africa, started to fight against the colonizers in a war, which then ended in this first genocide of the 20th century, while on this very same day, South, uh, Germany did not acknowledge with a single word what happened 20, uh, 120 years ago. So Geingob in a very undiplomatic, very strict and rough statement condemned the German position and said, how dare you to take sides publicly with Israel being under suspicion to commit a genocide while you have not yet lived up properly to the genocide you committed to us. Yet, Henning Melber, when you go to Germany, you go to uh, Dachau outside of Munich, Munich uh, Berlin, anywhere, uh, the, the camps and the ravages of World War II are memorial sites. They're funded by the government. They're out in public. Um, there's a lot of mea culpa. There's a lot of ownership of the horrors that happened in the past, yet something like this is being covered up and Germany is taking this, I guess, Ger well, Germany is not looking to recognize this as a genocide, the loss of 20,000 lives in um, on the Gaza Strip in Palestine, along with some 49,000, we believe, that have been, you know, damaged in some way, loss of limbs, 
their health, uh, hospitals being destroyed. Uh, some of this seemingly against the Nuremberg codes of what you are allowed and not allowed to do in these modern times. So how does Germany reconcile this? Well, it sounds like they're not really reconciling this, but the press is certainly sniffing around. It's a reconciliation light when it comes to the Namibian case. They negotiated joint declaration between the two governments makes provision only for recognition of genocide in today's perspectives, which is a very important legal provision because it means it's not a genocide in real terms. In legal terms implicating it was happening before the adoption of the United Nations Genocide Convention, which also then by implication means there is no legal consequence to pay reparations. So that joint declaration also says Germany is willing as a sign of recognition to provide a limited amount of compensation. And it also says this ends the chapter to open a new perspective. And that's in total contrast to the guilt feeling which is cultivated since the Holocaust. And from the Namibian perspective, they say you are treating us differently in a discriminating way from the way you treat the Jews. You would not dare to say the Holocaust because it happened before 1948, is a genocide in today's perspective. Just imagine for a moment you would dare to say that. And you would also not say the Jews are not entitled to reparations. This is exactly what happened. Now, for the Namibians being told you're not entitled to that because the Holocaust has been a singularity, their response is, the mass extermination you inflicted on us were for us was for us as much a singularity. So if you then come with these different criteria, you are racist. And this provokes this utter frustration of the head of state in Namibia to say, how dare you once again to apply these double standards? Wow. We're right now live from Germany. We're talking to Henning Melber, who just wrote the piece, Namibia, Germany and Israel, the pitfalls of selective remorse and trauma for the Namibian. He's with the Nordic Africa Institute, senior advisor and director emeritus of the Dag Hammarskjöld Foundation. And we're looking at a piece of history that many of us didn't know about, which was a mass extermination in Africa back between 1904 and 1908, where uh, some of the indigenous people certainly one sect uh, lost 80%, another one 40% of their total population, and Germany is not stepping up to the plate as it has with the Holocaust uh, and admitting, taking responsibility and offering reparations, but wiggling out of that uh, using a you know a legal trick saying, well, there was no such thing as even the word Holocaust back then, so therefore it's not a Holocaust. I mean, really, it's just playing with language, but it works in law, doesn't it? Language, words. It does. 
And what is applied is the principle of intertemporality, a legal term which means you cannot and should not judge what happened then by today's criteria. But it's a flawed argument because when that genocide happened at the beginning of the 20th century, the German Empire had signed the Hague Convention of the late 1890s. And it violated in the warfare in Southwest Africa against the Hague Convention. So even applying the criteria of the time then, 120 years ago, would mean it was committing an international crime. It was committing a war crime based on the Hague Convention. And the system of intertemporality is also not applied, of course, for the Nazi regime. You would not dare to say, but that was happening before the UN Convention. The system of inter, uh, the, the principle of intertemporality is not applied when it comes to the history of East Germany, the former GDR where also it is not argued that that was a legal system. It's from today's perspective of Germany, an illegal system, and the laws then in place in the GDR were not acceptable. But then you come back and you argue, but the laws then during the times of colonial Germany were legality. And these are exactly the double standards of, to put it more generally, Western hegemonic discourse, where the global South is sick and tired to be lectured. This case is just one puzzle piece among many where the global South turns its back on the West and says, stop lecturing us with your selective morality and double standards. We're going to pause for a second here on Rethinking Heroes. On the other side, we're going to talk more with Henning Melber, find out what can be done and how does this work alongside what's happening in Israel and the Gaza Strip? Are there comparisons that could be made and what do people think around the world, not just us here looking out through our little prism or people in Western Europe looking through their prism as he's pointed out, but what do the people of Earth say since the people of Earth have gathered to talk about this very subject? It is Rethinking Heroes, back in a flash. We are in complete control. We are Rethinking Heroes with Carrie Harrison. RethinkingHeroes.com Are you juggling multiple tools to run your online business? Well, thankfully, there's a better way, and it's called Kartra. K-A-R-T-R-A. With Kartra, boosting your income has never been easier. That's because it's the ultimate all-in-one platform for online success, offering every tool you need to grow. Imagine building pages, funnels, courses, autoresponders, and checkouts all in one place for one affordable price. And the best part about Kartra is that you can automate anything. So it's like having a team of experts working around the clock to help you earn more. Ready to streamline and scale? Well, visit RethinkingHeroes.com money for a free 30-day trial. That's RethinkingHeroes.com money for a free 30-day trial. Rethinking Heroes with Carrie Harrison. RethinkingHeroes.com Are you familiar with Riverside Recovery of Tampa? 
Well, they offer a profound, all-embracing approach to addiction treatment. With a dedicated team of empathetic professionals, Riverside Recovery is committed to guiding individuals on their path to enduring recovery, using a variety of science-backed therapies, counseling, and support services. Riverside Recovery values the individuality of every recovery journey. Their tailored treatment plans respond to the specific needs, the hurdles, the goals of each resident, providing effective aid regardless of whether you're taking your first steps in recovery or maintaining your progress. With Riverside, recovery isn't just achievable, it's an influential journey towards a healthier, brighter future. The testimonials of those who've undergone treatment there are evidence of rediscovered self-worth and potential. Located on the tranquil Hillsborough River of Tampa, Riverside serves as a peaceful haven promoting self-discovery and healing. They acknowledge that recovery is about more than just overcoming difficulties. It's also about finding your innate strength and resilience. The Riverside Recovery's committed team are your empathetic allies in your recovery journey. They comprehend that genuine healing involves the mind, the body, and the spirit, meticulously dealing with all facets of addiction. You can discover more at rrtampa.com. That's rrtampa.com. Or reach out at 1-800-871-5440. That's 800-871-5440. 800-871-5440 or rrtampa.com. Carrie Harrison with you. This is Rethinking Heroes. <laughs> you have to love the, the uh, modern technology where we're all over the world at one point and you know there's delay and lag but uh, we're suturing it up nicely. Don't forget, you can go to RethinkingHeroes.com. You can sign up for our free newsletter. Well, we'll send you copies of video. Also, the video streaming of this particular program is available freely on Facebook, YouTube, and other places. Plus, through if you get on our uh, mailing list, we'll send you stuff we simply cannot do on the radio and are happy to do that. We're talking right now from Germany, Henning Melber, who just wrote the piece, Namibia, Germany, that's a hard word to pronounce, Namibia, Germany and Israel, the pitfalls of selective remorse and trauma for the Namibian. He's with the Nordic Africa Institute, is senior advisor and director emeritus of the Dag Hammarskjöld Foundation. Did I pronounce that fairly accurately? Hammarskjöld? More or less. Uh, the, the, the writing is misleading. It's actually Hammarskjöld. You don't pronounce the K. But that's a common mistake. Welcome okay. to the club. <laughs> Welcome to the club. Exactly. I know. This stuff is almost impossible. Wir können Deutsch reden, aber that wouldn't be very polite if we did. So we'll do it in English. And your English is way better than mine. So congratulations to that. Well, that's, that's an extraordinary that's skill set. That's a blunt lie, but uh, you're the moderator. You get away with it. <laughs> Let's talk, Henning Melbourne. Look, sense of humor. Let's talk about the ongoing military aggression by Israel and how the media around the world is looking at viewing it that way because it's really it, people are confused as to is this an overreach or is it reasonable nobody really has a clear answer i'm not standing there so i really don't know though we have had lots of different reporters point out their versions is there a fresh start in negotiations is there a way that say africa is looking at israel that might be different from the way in the u.s where it's more like a football game and we just hope we whoever we is win 
a number of countries in Africa looked at Israel very differently, and it relates to their own history of being occupied, being a settler uh, societies, being under apartheid in southern Africa, in Namibia and in South Africa, which also made them very empathetic in their feelings and solidarity with the occupied territories of Palestine. And that's not by accident that South Africa brought the case to The Hague. They know in Southern Africa and in other countries what it means to live under a white minority regime. Now, I'm not saying that Israel is a white minority regime, but many people, and even following Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, many other very serious established institutions, the so-called democracy of Israel is bordering to an apartheid system where there is structural discrimination of people. So that is at best a very limited democracy. And that resonates with people in former colonies and in particular in Southern Africa where the system of apartheid existed. And I think there is a lack of understanding in Western societies who do not have such a history when it comes to the internalized feelings of those people where their parents, grandparents, not too long ago, were humiliated through structurally embedded racism. And it's a lack of empathy or unwillingness to understand the feelings of these people. That comes into the picture why Germany treats Namibians so differently from how it treats Jews. And that is something one needs to understand why the Global South now stands up and says, it's enough. You're not continuing to tell us what we are about to feel, and how we should act politically. And I think that's a big mistake of Western countries where other countries like China, even Russia, cashes in. They sit back, they relax, and they think, let's just play it out. Why do you suppose, Henning Melber, that Germany is not acting the way properly that it does toward the Jewish people with memorials and you know, constantly being transparent and embracing and owning the horrors of history. Why are they, what's the upside? What's the payoff to blow off this chunk of Africa? Is it like really just racism, skin color, et cetera? The lack that maybe these aren't, it's not a giant customer base and therefore doesn't have the same value or, I mean, there, you've, you've had eyes in there. Like, what's the upside to really blowing this off, like pushing against it and saying, it's really not there, look away? I think it's not necessarily an entirely rational attitude. There is a mental block. It's a bit like the trauma of the Holocaust has been so big, so toxic, that going back a step and say, wait a moment, that was not the beginning. The Holocaust was the culmination of something that started at the beginning of the 20th century. You have committed the first genocide 
30 years, 35 years before the Holocaust. And it was then basically brought back into the home country. Hannah Arendt pointed to that on, in her book on totalitarian rule, where, where she said to understand the Holocaust, you need to go back into the history of violence by Germany in the colonies. But that means you have to go back in what many perceive the good old times. And the response is, don't touch it, don't touch it. We are the world champions in remorse and guilt when it comes to the Holocaust. Don't blame us for other things. It's very painful to admit that Germany in the 20th century was involved in two and a half genocides. The one in Southwest Africa, then being complicit in the Armenian genocide, and then executing the Holocaust. That is a tough act to admit. And I think there is a psychological element which is leading to that kind of denialism. Well, we certainly have our version of that here in the United States. I think there is no official count much of uh, how many what we call Indians or Native Americans, how many were slaughtered, but it could be around 16 million. Uh, it's the same thing in Australia with the Aboriginals, which is what they call themselves. Um, I said, well, what's the official number here? And they said, well, we actually don't count them. If you don't count them, then you don't know how many are gone. And up until the late 1980s, uh, under the laws of Australia, which of course is a British, former British colony, uh, Aboriginals were considered game animals. And if one stepped on your lawn, you could shoot them. They were also kidnapped and turned into indentured servants. And this is within the lifetime of everybody listening. So unless you talk about it, look at it and admit it, it's simply not there. And if you can deny it and make it go away, then we can watch the Kardashians or do something way more interesting. So it's hard work and it's thankless work that you do. But I appreciate the education here because honestly, two weeks ago, I did not know about this colonial uh, brutality that went on in Africa through Germany. I knew that you know various countries we'd all had colonies everywhere but i didn't know about this one and so when this came up in the news and i started studying it i you came up and i realized that you're really doing very tough work and you're in germany talking about it which may or may not be popular for you i don't really know <laughs> speaking truth to power is in most places not very popular but being confronted with a German history where the slogan never again was coined after the Holocaust, it should be a reminder that it should be even-handedly applied, which also means it should be applied when the state of Israel pursues a war strategy which turns erstwhile victims into perpetrators. Then never again should have to be applied in that case too. Very much appreciate your coming on from Germany as Henning Melber just wrote the piece, Namibia, Germany and Israel, the pitfalls of selective remorse and trauma for the Namibian. He is with the Nordic Africa Institute, is senior advisor and director emeritus of the Dag Hammarskjöld Foundation. And I'm very grateful you came on, my friend. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. 
Terry Harrison with you. This is Rethinking Heroes, RethinkingHeroes.com. I hope you got as much out of it today as I did. This was a deep dig show, um, but a necessary one to have for sure. And I look forward to seeing everybody next week. Listen, while it's still legal. Rethinking Heroes with Carrie Harrison. RethinkingHeroes.com. Copyright Audiences United, LLC. All rights reserved.